Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. It is the 23rd of February, 2021. I am your host, Byron Pace. This conversation I recorded at the end of last year, so November, December 2020. I don't think there's anything that's particularly dated, but I just wanted to let you know so that you're aware as you're listening to this chat with Adeline Fox, who is the board president of the Big Bend Conservation Alliance, which is an organization based in Texas. It is, in some regards, quite a Texas-centric conversation. However, so many of the aspects, if not all of the aspects that we talk today, are actually applicable globally. Uh, so we talk about water provision and conservation, uh, dis- the disturbance of putting in natural gas pipelines, uh, dark sky reserves, uh, work around preserving cultural heritage and why that's important. All of these things are not just a Texas issue. Uh, so I think that wherever you're listening to this podcast from, you'll be able to draw parallels from our conversation today. But before we get into it, I need to announce the winner from the competition that we've run over the last two weeks, which was to win a copy of Modern Huntsman Volume 3. And all I asked you to do was sign up to the newsletter on modernhuntsman.com. And we randomly selected somebody who's done that in the last two weeks. And that person is Jefferson Downing. So well done, Jefferson. You are the winner. Reach out to me, uh, podcast at paceproductionsuk.com or on any of the social medias. I'm Byron J. Pace, pretty much everywhere, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And we will get a copy of Volume 3 out to you. Of course, we are going to run another competition, which will go for the next two weeks, again, to win a copy of Modern Huntsman, who are our partners on the podcast. A lot of exciting things happening this year. We are right in the discussions of the bones of what is going to be volume seven. But unfortunately, I cannot give you any information on that right now, other than to tell you it's going to be awesome. Uh, Again, we're going to keep it very simple. Just share this podcast somewhere on some social media platform. Uh, You can get all of the tags and find all that places, uh, all the places to do that by just heading over to my website, which is byronpace.com. And you you can check out all the tags if you can't remember them or you struggle to find them. But if you search my name, you'll be able to find me on social. So when this podcast goes out, As you're listening to it, share it on social, make sure you tag me, and I will pick a winner at random in two weeks' time, and we will send a copy of Modern Huntsman out to you. And lastly, before we dive into the show, I have to do a shout-out to our top-tier Patreon supporters this month, who include Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RD Contracting, Dr. Code at UK, James Marchington, the guys at South Asher Stalking, Josh Starling, Thomas Cameron, Mark Zabrowski, and the team at Galaxy Clothing. We've had a couple of new Patreon supporters in the last few weeks who are not necessarily top-tier, but every dollar, every pound, every euro, whatever denomination you support the podcast in really helps. So you can head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace, and you can have a look at the tiers there and see how to support the show. You can also just go over to byronpace.com, click podcast, and there's a way to donate to the podcast. If you don't want to sign up to a Patreon account and don't want to do something that's that's monthly, you can just make a, a one-off donation. Everything really helps towards getting these podcasts out every week and creating the opportunity for me to speak to these fascinating people who not only teach me a mountain of information and things I didn't know, but hopefully teach you as well. So with all of that said, I will delay you no further. Please welcome 
Adeline Fox to the show. Adeline, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. Fantastic to have you on today, all the way from what part of North America are you in right now? I'm actually in Austin, Texas. Okay, so you are in the great state of Texas. I was mm-hmm. there uh, at the start of the year for the first time. Oh, cool amazing. Place. Did you like yeah, it? Yeah, I was. I loved it. I, I bought a pair of cowboy boots. <laughs> That's a given. <laughs> I mean, you have to do that. <laughs> can, do, I, you cannot go to Texas, and it certainly can't go to Dallas, Texas, and not come away with a pair of cowboy boots. I stopped short Absolutely. at the hat. I well, don't have next a time. Hat. Yeah, that's your second trip. Yeah, yeah. I, had to, I had to leave something to, to, to come back for. Not that I need an excuse. I really enjoy my time. In fact, I was there twice. I did a job in um, somewhere outside of Houston in December, and then I was back again in February. That's so, awesome. Yeah, twice, well, having never been before. That is really great. We'd love to have you back anytime. So feel free to visit so are again. You, are you a Texas native? I am. I was not born in Texas, but I was here as soon as I turned one. So technically, I consider myself Texan. I wouldn't know any different. So so you rock the cowboy boots and cowboy hats. I do. Yeah, I actually have them. I don't wear them as much in Austin, um, but I definitely wore them a lot in my in my heyday. Um. Uh, <laughs> awesome. So um, just... We're going to talk a lot today about uh, Big Ben, the Big Ben Conservation Alliance, which was brilliantly brought to my attention, and I'm so glad. Uh, I'm so glad that it was, uh, and what that entails, how it was set up, what your involvement is there. But since I do not really know you at all, give me a little bit of background. So before your position at um, the Big Ben Conservation Alliance, what, what has been your background? What have you been involved in? So I actually grew up on my grandmother's ranch. She was a rancher in far west Texas and had Hereford cattle and horses. And I grew up riding horses and it it was just like every other day. I didn't even realize that was unique at the time. And then um, when I started school age, I moved to this small town called Valentine, Texas, which has 200 people. There were literally two, two kids in my class, me and one other person. Um, So it was quite crazy, um, you know, coming to Austin and and starting from such humble beginnings, but um, very rural upbringing. And then I graduated from from high school and went on to study agricultural communications. And I interned in Washington, D.C., thought I was going to be in the policy realm. And then I, I changed my mind and decided that the nonprofit world was much more my space. And so now I live and work in Austin and work as a director of communications for two nonprofits that relate to water policy. They do a lot of water policy work for statewide interests. Okay. And one of those is the Big Ben Conservation Alliance. That's actually a separate thing. So, um, oh, so this is a whole other thing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so tell my, me about the two nonprofits that you work for. So one of them is called the Texas Groundwater Association, and they're a trade association for groundwater professionals. So a, a slew of different people from anything relating to groundwater, including geologists, hydrologists, water well drillers. It's quite a quite a different group there. And then Texas Water Conservation Association, which is focused on water supply and just making sure that Texas has enough water to sustain through, through the many years and the population growth that we're seeing here. And then Big Ben Conservation Alliance is my volunteer time. I am president of that organization, and we are based in Alpine, which is where I grew up. So that's my connection to BBCA. Okay, so I will say BBCA from now on. I'm amazed that you have time to do anything else after <laughs> everything else that you've listed. I have to ask, like, before we go and talk about BBCA, um, 
I mean, obviously, water is vitally important. We all need water to survive. I think most people are increasingly aware of the, you know, what could be well in certain states or in certain countries around the world, um, there is a legitimate water crisis, and it's upon them or impending. Uh, some people say that the great wars that are going to be fought in the future are going to be over water and not gold and oil. Uh, but w- what is it about w- water that has clearly drawn you in and that has been one of the things that you're really focusing on here? Yeah, so I, I assumed I was going to be working in ag policy. Yeah, this is what I figured. Yeah. <laughs> it, the route well, Which is kind of connected. I mean, yes. you need for agriculture, you need water. Absolutely. And so I my first job out of college was actually working with a groundwater conservation district. And I, I started looking at data that I had never seen before that was showing, you know, these major depletions in wells that that should have a steady supply. And there was somehow, you know, we were using more than we were putting back in. And it just really hit me that wow, this is a career path for me. This has to be talked about. We have to communicate these issues and really find solutions for them. And so that's why the communications and water piece really made sense for me. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people don't consider we, you know, we extract groundwater. Well, we don't do it so much here where I live in Scotland. We take a lot of water from, from rivers and burns and stuff. We have a lot of water that flows on the surface. But mm-hmm. around the world, we extract a lot of groundwater. But some of these aquifers that are supplying this groundwater took tens of thousands of years to fill up, and they're not filling mm-hmm. up as quick as we're extracting. And I, this concept that there are these underground lakes, I think a lot of people think of them like we think of the lakes on the surface, which is, right. well, you you can't possibly, I mean, if you took out more than you put in, we'd see the river dry up that's flowing out the other side. It's It's something that doesn't really happen, or certainly doesn't really yes. happen in the part of the world that I live in. I mean, we see the in warm summers, we see the levels of these, you know, some of these lakes goes down, but the rivers pretty much always flow. But it's a completely, I mean, the the geology involved is completely different when you're talking about underground aquifers. Yes. And in, in Texas, I think we are dependent on 50% of our total state resources are from groundwater. And so it's wow. a huge number. That's why managing it and making sure that it's you know going to be lasting for future generations is so important because it's we rely on it and we don't have you know the water that we have is the same water that we've always had. It's not like we can create more. <laughs> no, it's just a no, matter it's of, just a cycle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's the management piece of it. It's you know we have I don't know eleven hundred people I think moving to Texas every day, which is great. But also, where are we going to find water for all of these people? And how do we make sure that we're taking care of our rivers and so that they're clean and still fun to, to play in? Yeah. So what are you doing about the groundwater sourcing to make sure that extraction, because almost any extraction is at that kind of scale when you're extracting for cities of the scale that exist in Texas is going to be beyond what they can replenish at. Right. So a lot of it is really about just being more technological, being more efficient with how we're using water. And a lot of a lot of the United States has already kind of moved everything indoors to proper conservation. And so it's, it comes down to a usage thing where there's an education piece to the public to say, listen, did you know that you're wasting gallons 
you leave the water on while you're brushing your teeth. And so, um, it's, the- <laughs> I, it's awesome that you bring that up because I, <laughs> sorry to interrupt do you. you but do this? That, yeah. No, well, this is exactly what was going through my mind because the one thing about wasting water that I ever remember from school here, bearing in mind, I live in a country that rains all the freaking time. <laughs> um, so water is not really a problem here. Somewhere like down South it is. Uh, you know they have, um, you know they have water shortages sometimes every every year to an extent, and they have hosepipe bams and that kind of thing. That doesn't really happen up here. Uh, but the one thing I do remember being taught at school, at primary school, is, hey, when you're brushing your teeth, do you leave the tap running? It's like, oh yeah, yeah, that is really a waste of water. Why am I doing that? So turn the tap off if you're brushing mm-hmm. your teeth, and then when you need to rinse and spit, turn the tap back on. Exactly. It's simple, but it's uh, multiply that by. 380 million people or however many people are in the USA, 65 million people, and then around the world, it adds up. It's crazy. And in Texas, uh, well, in Austin, I should say, we we have a conservation strategy. And I say we because they're a member of the organization I work with, but they have a strategy that says conservation is our cheapest and also most effective way to reduce water usage and to have future supply. So conservation is a huge strategy and that that's really an education piece that will be impacting um, the public because the public is very comfortable with just having water come out of the faucet, no need to worry about it. But um, yeah, there's always a source. And so educating people about the source is important. So you're actually trying to encourage people to think about the conservation of these environments that your water actually comes from. So these, right. these kind of these headwaters and uh, and and basins that are, are uh, yes. water catchments was the was the word I was looking for. Yeah, that are feeding the the feeding the water to your tap. Right, because it's been proven that if people can understand the source, they're more willing to save. That actually was a research a report done back in the early '90s that Texas did um, at a state level. And in central Texas, which is where I am, um, the aquifers, you can actually go into these cavernous formations and see the aquifers a little bit That's incredible. It is incredible. Yeah, you can actually walk into the Edwards Aquifer, which is really incredible. But it also helps people visualize, oh my gosh, this is a living, breathing thing. I can understand the recharge. I can understand rain filling this. I can understand using using it. In other parts of Texas, it's not that simple and, and you can't really see the groundwater or the formation beneath the surface. So just a little fun fact. That's so very true. And it's the same with, you know, when we're looking at at species protection, which is a a Mm -hmm. whole other thing is like actually the definition of species. But one of the arguments for being very definitive about what a species is, is how can you expect people to care and protect something if they don't know what it is? Right. So to be able to give something a name, you know, a scientific name or a, a more a name in in common usage as the animal that you're trying to protect mm-hmm. is far more effective than ju- it's far more effective than just saying. And and this is a something that is discussed all the time right now, especially with the uh, release of David Attenborough's film like a week or two weeks ago. Is yes. We need to protect biodiversity. But then the big question is for a lot of people, and I study this and it's not a, it's not a, a an easy answer. It's like, well, what the hell is biodiversity in the first place? Well, actually, even the scientists can't really tell you what that is. We, we have broad concepts of it, but when mm-hmm. you really start to break that down, you're trying to work out, well, what are we then protecting because you can't just say well let's protect everything because again like what does that mean and we can't protect everything we need to work out where we need to where our limited resources are best used so Mm -hmm. being able to 
provide a visual stimulus for people um, to take action upon. It's so very important. So with this work that you're doing, uh, it is then getting people to change their, like the way that they live their daily lives. So the toothbrush example is just one of many, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's part of it. Um, Obviously, outdoor usage is probably the largest, still the largest usage for residential people watering their lawns and things Uh. like that. So um, retrofitting sprinkler systems. And these are things that I'm not working on, but the industry in itself, you know, these are things that the industry is pushing for residential people to do. Um, just to have, you know, native plants in your yard. It's as simple as that. It's crazy that people will have, you know, hyacinths in the desert and it's that insane. doesn't belong there. <laughs> it's absolutely insane. And I've seen this cause I spend a bit of time in, in LA and, and in California and around there. And they're pretty good actually in, in many places that you'll see a lot of, uh, like desert adapted plants or, you know, or mm-hmm. plants that belong in the desert and you don't see a lot of lawns because it doesn't rain there very much and because you can't water them. But then every now and then you see like this pristine, like mat of grass, which is actually grass. And you're thinking to yourself, why, mm-hmm. why, why are you doing this? And even like, even if, uh, if I extrapolate that to like this country, we have so much grass here that is cut like within an inch of its life every week. And I've been guilty of that too. Now, next year, what I want to do is I've established a whole heap of other lawn. And there's good reasons why people want lawns in their garden. Sure. It's e- easy to maintain. It's good for the dog to go and have a wee on and the kids to play on. Uh, but what I'm going to do next year is I'm actually going to try uh, and I, I sowed a lot of um, field grass in there. So I'm going to try and just do two cuts for the year. Let it grow long, let it seed, let it flower. And it's going to be so much better for the wildlife. And the same is true with exactly what you're saying, which is plant things that are sympathetic or and actually belong mm-hmm. to the environment that you live in. And especially in a place like Texas or California where water is such a, at, a, at a premium, I'm amazed actually that there isn't uh, legislation in place that prohibits people from from planting in a, inappropriate foliage that is a, a water draw. To my knowledge in Texas, it's a city by city kind of case. Um, so Austin probably has more progressive rules on the books for what you can plant and what you can't. Um, while other areas are a little bit more lenient, but it's all based on city ordinances. So it, there's nothing at the state level. Okay. So what, as a matter of interest, what other, what other initiatives are there and what other are the other big draws? I imagine industry, various forms of industry, are, do they... Um, outstrip the many public, uh, many individuals who are using water? Definitely, yes. So industry, yeah. municipalities, and agriculture are kind of our top three. Of course, agriculture will be Yes, top three. One. And we have a, a huge agricultural mm-hmm. sector that's very important to our economy and very important to our food and fiber sources here. Um, but yes, I think over time you'll see that irrigation number getting lower as we have more people moving to the urban centers in Texas. And that's something that we're planning for. Um, as a state, we have a state water plan where we're, we're tracking all of these trends and the supply and the demand and trying to make sure that we're on track to, to meet our goals. Um, and that's just as, as a state of Texas. That's not the organization I work with. We're just affiliated on the fringe. But um, yeah, industry is an interesting one because oil and gas is also a huge economic driver for the state of Texas. I think a third or maybe even two thirds of our budget that the legislature has is from oil and gas revenue. Um, And of course, it employs a lot of people. So an important industry. They have gotten better at recycling water for fracking. 
initially they were all using fresh water to frack um, oil yeah. wells, and that was obviously very wasteful. But now um, you see the industry kind of shifting gears a little bit. They're they're understanding that it's not economically impossible to recycle this water and still get the product they need. So I think there's more to more to do in in terms of oil and gas industry, but they they are looking at these technologies. Okay. Yeah, I know the whole water discussion is a fascinating one and so very, very important. Yes. Thank you for letting me really geek out on that for a little oh, while. Absolutely. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm all for geeking out on uh, water uses and water <laughs> conservation because it's, I mean, it, you, there's so many places that you can go with that. One of the big campaigns right now is uh, happening here in the UK is actually just trying to improve the water quality of a lot of our rivers. Mm-hmm. And, and we have done like an amazing job in many rivers over the last, say, 50 years. I mean, there was a time where the Thames was basically toxic. <laughs> and now fish actually run the Thames again. Wow. And uh, there's many rivers which have recovered. But equally, there's many instances of little streams running into bigger rivers which still have like raw sewage um, flowing into them because of poorly maintained sewage systems in rural communities and sometimes uh, poorly maintained sewage systems actually in the cities themselves there's a lot of work to Mm do and i think that as, as is probably true in many countries around the world those uh sort of government departments tend to be under resourced and uh and the other big thing actually and i guess this is probably true where you are as well but it's definitely true here because our towns and cities are much older than yours is that our water pipe network some of it is so freaking old Mm -hmm. that it's cracked and leaking and just like pissing water everywhere underground which is so incredibly wasteful and in the cities it's actually one of the biggest uses of water is not using it appropriately because of cracked pipes Absolutely. Yeah. Aging infrastructure is a number one priority at the federal level where, you know, aging infrastructure in water is dire because if you have lead pipes, then there's contamination. Um, The whole Flint, Michigan um, debacle was was horrendous. And so I think... We need, That's a we whole need more story that. Yeah, let's not even go there, actually. <laughs> well, let's, I'll tell you what, just for people interested, before, before you carry on there, is there's a, there's a series of documentaries about Flint uh, mm. on Netflix. It's like there's one called Flint Town, which is mainly, it started off about water, but then it was about the police force. And then I think um, Michael Moore did a whole documentary on Flint, didn't he? I think so. That sounds yeah. familiar to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> God, so yeah. it's a problem there. here too. Yeah. Aging infrastructure is a top priority that we really need to address in terms of funding. So. Yeah. So, okay. Let's go from water to um, BBCA. Okay. When did you, when did you get involved with, well, tell me about when, when you got involved with you, how you found out about them before we start talking about actually what they are, apart from sure. having a, a, a an acronym that trips off the tongue. <laughs> Well, I uh, moved to Austin in 2016, and I was actually at a, a, a work event, and I ran into one of the founding board members, Matt Lara, um, who is no longer on the board, but I ran into him, and he was living in Austin on the board, and he said, we're looking for board members for Big Bend Conservation Alliance, and I don't think he knew I was from Alpine originally, and so I just said, oh my gosh, this would be amazing. I would love to get involved somehow, and so I've been on the board since 2016. Pretty much after that conversation, it was really amazing how that how quickly that um, pr- progressed, and then I became president in January of 2020. So still, still in my first year of presidency. Oh, amazing! So, what is it? What is it? what is the Big Bend Conservation Alliance? 
Yeah, great question. So we were founded in 2015 in response to um, a 143-mile pipeline tearing through private land. So it was a natural gas pipeline that was en route from far west Texas through Mexico all the way to the Mexican coast, which would have been exported. And so there's been a a demand for natural gas overseas. Um, This was a terrible pipeline for us because it was tearing up the lands that we love. And so the founding uh, members of BBCA created this grassroots movement where they were bringing in landowners and community members of all different backgrounds to say, look, we understand this is a resource that's important, but why here? Why does it have to tear up this part of Texas? And so they actually um, had the highest number of on-the-docket comments about natural gas pipeline in the history of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And that is the organization that regulates transmission and sale of electricity and natural gas in the United States. So they had a an incredible effort. Um, unfortunately, the pipeline was still put in the ground, but that is how we started. And that grassroots, really fire and passionate group of people has progressed into what we are now, which is an organization that focuses on water, land, dark skies, and cultural resource. So we've kind oh, of extended so much our cool mission. Stuff. Yes. That's amazing. Yes. But I want to get into I want to get into all these facets of what BBCA is now, but Absolutely. just because I'm 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 intrigued. So uh, I mean the pipeline you assume if we, if if we assume that we're going to carry on using fossil fuels, which right now we are, the pipeline had to go somewhere. So was there a better place to put it? And why did it eventually still still go where it was um, where they had originally planned to put it, despite all the opposition that clearly um, came up from it? Well, it was a little tricky because in Texas, private pipeline companies can issue eminent domain, which is taking a private lands for public good. But the thing is that it was not really a public good for the for the people where the, the pipeline route was. It's a public good for whoever's getting the product at the end of the line. And so it's, I would say, as strong as our voices were and as, as fiery as we were about, this is not going to work in our backyard, we're still not as powerful as those private pipeline companies who pretty much can put a pipeline in the ground while it's in the courts, while it's being litigated. Oh, so you don't um, even have to wait. Right. So there, oh. there are some so it's a bit major... too late by then. <laughs> exactly. So there are some major reforms needed in Texas to prevent these private pipeline companies from issuing eminent domain powers when they really don't have a public good to, to offer. Um, so yes, our voices were, were big and mighty, but just not mighty enough for, for the rules and regulations that exist. In Texas. See, that's a really interesting. I mean, public goods are a really interesting concept, uh, mm-hmm. which I do distinctly remember studying when I did economics. Um, because, yeah, it's like where, where, who is receiving the public good and who is bearing the cost of that? Right. And you assume uh, for something to be a public good that everyone is receiving equal benefit and bearing equal cost. Yes. Whereas clearly this is an instance where that wasn't the case. So I suppose that there's a, um, I don't know, is there, was there an offset for a public good for the state or the country as a whole? Um, and someone has to, has to bear that cost. So you said it was running, it was taking gas from, from Mexico. 
No, opposite. It was taking it from Other West way. Texas to Mexico. Mm-hmm. To Mexico to right. then be and exported. Yes. Um, but that's and just so because that's where the the port was for exporting, I the assume. The demand, yes. And the okay. demand was, I believe, in Asia somewhere. Um, okay. but, but the, the – oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, but so I'm just thinking this through now. So the people selling the gas in the first place, it is Texan gas. So yes. those are companies operating in Texas, right. but not necessarily where the pipe is lying, obviously at the source of the pipeline or, or at the, the places where the gas is fed in yes. um, along the way. So is it the issue that uh, some of the – there were p- people who obviously owned that land because I know you have a very high private land pub- mm-hmm. private land ownership in Texas. Um, were having a pipe over their land and not getting anything out of it, and it was. I'm assuming that there was other complications as well with conservation and migration corridors. Was it a buried pipe, or were there yes. ecological concerns as well? Yes. So I should be clear that people, if if the pipeline was crossing private property, there were. Um, contracts that were brought to the landowner. But even if the landowner said, I'm not interested in this contract, I don't want to tear up my land, that wasn't an option. They were going to go that route regardless, but the landowner could be compensated if they agreed to these certain terms. Um, something that we we have been monitoring and will continue monitoring is once that pipeline is buried in the the ground returns um, over and, you know, we're trying to make sure that native grasses are planted on the, um, the pipeline stretch that is not always laid out properly. So there's something called surface use agreements that landowners can exercise where they, they can actually lay out exactly how they want their land to be afterwards. But the thing is it's, it's not really common knowledge and to know exactly what to ask for and to demand of the contract, you really have to be educated and very aware of legalese that these pipeline companies use. So it's, it's very tricky. There is compensation. It's not always what is deserved of the land. And if they don't want to take that compensation, most times that pipeline is going to go through anyway, which is just really unsettling. So it's kind of dumb not to take the pumps, uh, the compensation because you're going to end up with a pipeline cutting across your land with you. Yeah, <laughs> like exactly. It or not by the sounds of it. Exactly. Yeah. So their, their hands are tied a little bit. And um, I do think there was some understanding that this pipeline could bring potential jobs to the region. Yeah. There was, you know, there was some tax revenue that was going to be, um, be given to the local counties where it was passing through, but that is still not really making enough um, headway to, to make it you know, all worth what what happened to me. Yeah. Okay. So. so that was obviously the catalyst that created this group. Yes. So tell me about some of the things that you're involved in now, because you've moved on from there. That that is something that is in the past. You can't go and change that now. Exactly. So in 2018, we we started looking at how do we defend these other areas of the region, including water, dark skies, cultural resources, and continuing to bring forward those issues we worked on with land, but not just being about eminent domain and, and this pipeline um, issue, because clearly there are these other important things that need to be advocated for and defended in the region. So we have expanded on our mission, um, expanded on our program areas, and we're strategically thinking through how we can best be conveners for bringing people together and partners together to really make change for, for the and, and maintain the beautiful country uh, side that we have in the Big Bend region. So you're getting to play with water again. Yes, as one of, I know. As one of, as one of the elements of this. Yes. 
Yeah, so we have some um, actual projects that we have going on as well that, so we transitioned into this larger scope. We have um, a whole new website. We've rebranded our logo. Is this the one that's live now? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. So just kind of developing the messaging a little better and being more strategic with with more program areas is kind of our where we are now. Um, do you want me to touch on some projects? Yeah, yeah. So I'm actually, I've got the website up in front of me because I'm just sc- okay. scanning through this. So, I mean, that, that was why I said you're looking at water again because I can see that there's a water study. <laughs> so maybe, yeah. maybe start off with that one. Sure. So we have been over the last, I think it's two or three years, we've been working with an entity called Southwest Research Institute, who is collecting data samples in the Balmeray Spring system to determine which springs are recharging Balmerine springs, which springs are connected. There's like a series of six different spring systems that all feed San Solomon Springs, which is what fills Balmerine Pool. For those that don't know, Balmerine Pool is actually one of the largest freshwater spring-fed pools that we have in Texas. It's amazing. It's this oasis in the middle of the desert with mountains surrounding it, and it has the clearest water and the coldest spring-fed water you'll ever encounter. This sounds like a place I need to visit when I go to Texas. <laughs> you absolutely should. Yes. So we're we're funding that research to understand the spring system better so that we can also know, okay, if something were to start pumping in this area, is this spring system going to be affected? Is it going to affect the larger spring system? So we'll have that uh, final okay. report. Um, I think by January, 2021, they're still kind of finalizing things. Um, so that's, that's one thing so we've important been doing. because understanding the feeds for a spring, I mean, you could you could inadvertently destroy the the nature of how that connects and feeds if you if you don't understand the mechanism mechanisms of flow properly. Yes, exactly. And we also have endangered species in the Balmerie pool um, that okay. are very sensitive to any type of quality change or quantity change, and so it's it's even more incumbent that we we really know what's happening with the spring system. So Cool. Well, I'll look out for that research. Now, dark skies. I have been to a couple of... I happen to live in a... It's not a dark sky reserve, but in a very... An area, I mean, where my house is, is like when I drive into the valley, I think I can see one of the house's lights. So it's very dark and I can watch shooting stars from my area outside my house. But I've been to a couple of actual designated dark sky reserves before, uh, one of which is in New Zealand, and I've been to one or two in the States. But for people who haven't heard about dark sky reserves and what that is, before you start talking about what you're involved in, like what is that and why is it important? Sure. So essentially, a dark sky reserve is a, a dedicated area that says, we're retrofitting lighting properly, we're watching our light pollution. So we want to see the stars. So basically the lighting has to be retrofitted a certain way. Um, there's really not commercial lighting as much in these so like areas. Like street lighting and that kind of thing. Yes. And if there is street lighting, it's retrofitted so that it's facing downward. So it's not, you know, shooting into the sky. The spill. Yeah. Um, so basically just designated areas that are remaining dark for a reason and, and have ordinances around the area that prevent too much light from encroaching on, on the reserve. Yeah. Cause it, Light pollution, it's such a... I'm so used to not seeing light pollution because of where I live. And then when you're in a city or... I mean, not you don't even have to be in a city, but any kind of like semi-urban area, you realize that so many people, they never get to really see... I mean, they see some stars. They'll see the bright things or they'll see some of the... Right. Like they'll see Venus or maybe Mars because it's bright and the moon. But to really like to see the Milky Way and, and to see 
the spectrum of stars that are in the sky, unless you leave the, these areas where there's no light pollution, you just do not see them. Yes, it's true. And the Big Bend region in Texas is either the first or the second. It's, it's up on the very, very high number of the darkest place in the United States. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't so, know that. Yes. And so we have this really great um, canvas of stars. And we're working with local partners, including the McDonald Observatory and um, other grassroots entities in the community to just be a partner in, in this project. But um, the Big Bend Ranch State Park is working to increase that Big Bend Dark Sky Reserve to cover 17,000 square miles of the Big Bend region. So there's already a lot of open country out there. This would expand it even further. And I think this would be the largest in the nation. I love that because... Acreage. I it's one of the things that really pisses me off actually. Is yeah. Even in the countryside here, where it is, as I said, it, it, it's pretty dark, but it's not a dark sky reserve. And I see like new houses going up, or even if it's not new houses, just people putting like a floodlight on the side of mm-hmm. their house, and just being really well for a start, sometimes like really inconsiderate the way they set floodlights up. But that's more of a social thing. But also not like I'll give one good example is there's a house down the road and they have all of their hopefully they don't listen to the podcast um (laughs) i don't think so they have all of their trees lit up with lights like spotlights sitting in the ground looking up the lights and it's like turn your fucking lights off yeah that's okay yeah i i understand that it's kind of pretty and you know maybe turn the lights on you know in the first few hours as it's going down because you know that that's fine and this isn't you know like I'm not saying we should all like behave like dictators when it comes to to <laughs> lights, you know, having lights on. But when you are living, particularly in a, it's different in in a city. But if you're living in a rural setting, don't go light your ha- house up and right. all your trees with bloody lights. For a start, what a waste of energy! Something that we're all trying to say. Yeah. But secondly, it's ugly. For everybody else, it's ugly. You know, it's we want to. We're here because we want to see what's here naturally, not what's lit up by humans yeah and it's uh, true. i wish people would more understand that more and just think about it. and i think that maybe i think for for people who have maybe grown up or lived their whole life in these kind of urban settings where there has always been so much light pollution that really sitting back and realizing what a special thing a dark sky is maybe that's why they're more inclined to do that i don't know i'm only, I'm only guessing and they, they maybe are not thinking of that maybe it's an education thing it is uh, but, I was but we need to protect that. them more it is an education piece, and sometimes it's an access piece. So we have local communities who are trying to pass some ordinances to have certain lighting on commercial buildings so that it's already set up to be properly lit in the system, which I think would be great. Um, but the thing is, in, in the residential spectrum of things, you know, they might see these, these retrofitting pieces of lighting fixtures in a store and they don't know how to install them or they don't, they think it looks overwhelming. So it's education access. And then obviously that implementation installation piece, which I think if we could help fund some retrofitting for residential communities, that would be helpful just to do it for them. And so that you don't even have to worry about it. We're going to help and make sure that your house is lit properly. Yeah, Um, no, I think that's really important. It's a challenge. 
It is definitely, but yeah, more dark skies, people. More dark yeah. skies. Think of, think about your lights, especially external lights in your house. Yeah. I'm not talking about like going back to World War Two when we were wor worried about German bombers coming over and we all had to black out <laughs> our lights and different put blinkers. Different issue. <laughs> <laughs> to totally different issue, but yeah, we need to think about our skies more. Yeah, totally. And you're also involved in like uh, some cultural heritage protection as well, which is fascinating. Yeah, so we are in the process of actually building kind of a resource page for our website. It's not up yet, so don't don't look at it. But um, <laughs> we are working on having a community resource page for cultural resource um, spots in our community, leaders in, in the community, and just trying to help direct people to a place where they can learn more about the holistic history of the region. Um, there is one project in particular that we're working on. Um, there is a cemetery in Presidio, Texas, and it's called Cementerio del Barrio de los Lipanes, which is a Lipan Apache cemetery. That, I'm looking at a picture of it now. Yes. So it has historically not really been recognized, and people may have walked by it and not even realized how how It's amazing. not in a great state of repair, I have to right. say. Right. Exactly. They don't even understand how it needs to be elevated. And so what we're trying to do is basically obtain a historical marker to recognize it, to make sure it has proper fencing so that it's a very, very much a staple of the community and not just this, you know, thing that people don't really understand. Uh, so that's a pretty exciting project we have going on. So for something like that, is it more about uh, sourcing funding for something like that? Is that what you're involved in? I think so. I have not been as much. Um, this is actually Scott, who is one of our. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I spoke to Scott. Yeah. He, he has been helping um, on the local local level with Presidio. And so I think obtaining historical marker is something we have to apply for through the state. But in terms of maintenance and upkeep, I do think that we would need to s secure some funding to just make sure it stays in that shape. Um, so hopefully yeah, no, we, will, we will get that going and, and maintained for future generations. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, maintaining these, you know, f facets of, of culture that sometimes, I mean, you can see from the picture, if people go on the B, uh, the big, big Ben Conservation Alliance org website, um, you'll be able to have a look at some of the stuff that we've been talking about. And this yes. particular, you can see how if no one uh, you know, cared enough to maintain this and protect it for future gen generations to learn about this, uh, part of cultural heritage that it would just disappear with the sands of time. I mean, you can see already with the fence falling down and mm -hmm. the sands that are blowing up over it. It's very easy for these things to disappear, but uh, it's equally so important that we, we we protect these so that people can enjoy them and learn from them. Because as I uh, was discussing with somebody quite recently, you know, without without the cultures of this world, it would be a very boring place you know without culture or are we, what are we without the cultures of this world exactly That's a very big question but also protecting the cultures that uh, you know the, the heritage of the cultures that have established them as they sit today is very important because I think yes learn, and that preservation yes and you, you hit the nail on the head I mean I think the preservation um, and the elevation of these stories and these um, staples that were staples in the community long ago that now have been kind of forgotten. I think it's really important to elevate those and to bring them back into light in present day um, and, and really have context behind them as well. This is uh, it's fascinating work and uh, I'm so pleased that uh, it's been brought to my attention and I've had a chance to, to speak to you. Here's a, here's a question for you. How is, how is 
this year affected the work that you've been doing? It's been I've, interesting. I've tried to stop asking this question because it's like <laughs> everybody's affected by this the bloody global pandemic in kind of similar ways. It's normally meant that we're at home, we're sitting at our desks, our projects have been postponed, things are not happening, people have lost their jobs. Uh, with right. the work that you'd intended to do this year, how's it, how's it affected you? You know, it's interesting because we we have been able to do something that I didn't really expect. Um, we conducted a research study where we interviewed 45 people and put together this awesome research report about priorities for the region. It is on our website. And that was all done during COVID because we can easily call people. We can easily you know, build these relationships, connect with people. That part hasn't changed. And so I'm really grateful that we've been able to push that forward. Um, we've also had some virtual roundtables. So part of the report, kind of an action step after the report was published, was to bring together community leaders, opinion leaders, and have these virtual roundtables to talk through issues like groundwater, issues like eminent domain, all the things that we've been talking about pretty much. And so we've been having virtual roundtables and everyone is probably ready to be done with Zoom forever. But um, it has helped us engage on a larger spectrum. And also, you know, people aren't having to travel to come to a meeting for one hour. So it's it's almost been beneficial in a way. That. Yeah, no, I can see that, and you know, I I totally agree with you. I mean, I'm 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 kind of, I'm done with Zoom, <laughs> only <laughs> only only in that it seems. I think there's a careful balance to tread with there because I think yes. sometimes, fortunately, I don't have a like I don't have a nine to five job. I work for myself. I do loads of different things, so I'm only getting on meetings that I actually want to be on. But I know from speaking to other people whose normal nine to five jobs have transitioned to them working from their kitchen table is that they spend their entire day on Zoom in meetings because people feel like they need to have meetings and then they've got to go actually go and do their day job once all <laughs> these meetings are over, which is just insane to me. So I think there's a there's a, an ease of doing it that means maybe people do it too often. However, on the flip side of that, exactly what you said, for me, it's been amazing to see this realization that we don't need to get on a, I don't need to, for example, I sit on a committee um, for, uh, it's, it's like a science communication committee for a conservation organization here. Mm. And I've only just, I've only just started sitting on the committee. So I never went to any of the, the meetings prior to COVID-19. But prior to that, they would meet twice a year and everyone would meet in London. And it just seems like such an incredible waste of time and resources. And I think now, I mean, maybe the people who live down there will maybe go and meet in a room. But I think the plan is now that before, if you couldn't make it, you just weren't at the meeting. Right. Whereas now they will set up a Zoom link. So like for me, that's way better because I travel a lot. Well, I used to travel when such things were possible uh, with work. But or I'm like, I can't really take in two days out, which is what it would take for me to get to London and back, basically, take two days out of my week to go to that meeting, even though I, I really want to contribute and, you know, play my play my part. Right. It'd be so much better. Just I stop what I'm doing and sit on the Zoom call for three hours. That's just so much better. And just think of all the time that we've won back by using yes. it in a smart way. So, yeah, I think if there is a positive to come from this, more embracing the technology to be smart about our use of time because i think actually in especially in the terms in the world of um environmental protection and conservation money is a very precious resource uh, resource but so is time time yeah. in fact i would i would argue because of the small number relatively speaking of people involved in it time is one of our most precious resources 
Yes. Agreed. So much. Yes. Snaps for you. I definitely agree. Um, <laughs> I, I was going to say too, um, in mm. West Texas at least. So everything is pretty far apart, right? There's of like, course, even, yeah. even the closest, I don't know if you know what Walmart is, but I do Walmart. know Walmart. Yeah. I've, I've <laughs> been doesn't? into Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> so, I know at Walmart, you can buy chickens at one counter and then an AR so at the other, or you used so to be able true. to. Welcome to America. Yeah. The United States. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, living, living close to a mall, you know, some of the things that people rely on in urban centers just doesn't exist in West Texas, or it's two, two and a half hours to get there. And so I think cutting down on travel for people who are already really spaced out has been nice too. Look, thank you so much for your time. I'm so grateful that you've uh, brought this to our attention. And I, I realize that for the list, uh, you know, for some people listening, I'd say probably about half our listeners are in America and uh, the other half are dotted around the world with a concentration in the UK where I live and podcast from mostly, and then Australia and New Zealand. And this is a, a very, you know, a local consideration. This is not only right. in the states, but it's in Texas. In once it does happen to be a very big state, but in one state in the U.S. However, the conversations that we've had and the topics that we've covered are applicable all over the world. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's so important to have these, and so important. I've brought this up many times before to learn from the work and the the, the failures and successes of organizations around the world who are doing very similar things. There will be people in people and organizations in other states and in other countries around the world who are paralleling a lot of the work that you're doing. And I think more synergy there, going back to this good use of resources, is going to help everybody going forward. Absolutely. 100%. In fact, do you and have any partnerships within we other do. organizations? Yeah. We do. Yes. Yeah. So we have worked closely with Patagonia. Um, we're in partnership with Yeti. We have several funders who are all over the United States and a lot of local partners that, you know, we wouldn't be able to even initiate any of these projects without our local partners. Um, Shield Airs Ranch Foundation, um, they're a great funder and, and supporter of ours. So it's, it's a, a partnership is going to get this change happening, right? All yeah. these partnerships that we have, that's how real change is actually going to happen. And so I, I will actually not list all the partners because I will forget one, but those That's are okay. a People few. can go on the website, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you can definitely check that out. We, we appreciate them so much and hoping to expand that partner list so we can be even bigger and, and even more powerful for the region. I think that um, just before we, we close off, just because you brought it up now, it's something that I've been quite critical of, um, especially in the in the kind of the hunting fishing space, but mm -hmm. maybe more the hunting space and the fishing space, which is you know a world that I also move in, is that I don't think with with few exceptions. I mean, Sitka has been quite a good one, especially recently at, at um, um, as being one of the exceptions uh, with their conservation grants. But there is not many companies who are truly putting actual money, like dollars and pounds into on-the-ground conservation initiatives that are making a difference. And I've sat at meetings and had conversations at big conventions, whether it be like SHOT Show or the, the equivalent ones in the, uh, over in Europe, and said, you realize that if you are not involved in this, if you don't have a seat at the table and you're not having conversations about how we um, integrate sustainable use through hunting or fishing, in the conservation and the, the bigger management and environmental movement going forward, you won't have a business going forward. And so many of them do not get it. 
they don't understand. Their their time horizon is just too short. And I know that, I mean, you mentioned Yeti and Patagonia. I mean, those are two big names that everybody listening to this podcast will know. Uh, those are two companies that have been particularly good at embracing and acknowledging the fact that they need to be engaged. They need to be engaged because I guess they probably feel like they have a moral obligation. But I think that, and I don't know, the, I'm, I don't think I know anybody yet anymore, But and I don't know really anybody that well at Patagonia. But I think beyond a moral obligation, they also realize that it's about, it's not just, it is equally about protecting um, the and the environment and conservation for the future for the continuation of their of their companies, as it is for for making a better planet for everybody. Yes. So. Yes, and it's going to take all of us. I mean, I I am convinced that everyone from every industry needs to be at this table speaking about conservation and real strategic solutions that are going to make sense that are not you know going to be. Um, economically dire to the region that already depends on just a few sectors, uh, you know, for jobs, which is agriculture, oil and gas, and and some others. But I think it's going to require partnerships on a larger scale with a more diverse group of people to really get things moving in the way that they need to. Okay, so there, there was actually one other thing that I wanted to ask you about, and this nearly slipped my mind, but I'm just checking my notes here. And that is um, the the work that's being done by Texas Parks and Wildlife and the Borderlands Research. What, what is that? Yeah, so Texas Parks and Wildlife and, and Borderlands Research Institute have actually both been great partners of ours. Um, obviously, we don't work as much in wildlife, but they're very much a part of our conversations when it comes to groundwater issues and land issues because obviously those impact wildlife. Yeah. Um, so Texas Parks and Wildlife, we've worked with them more when it comes to Balmeray Springs, and they they do have a state park there that they manage. That Balmeray Pool is managed by Texas Parks and Wildlife. So we work in parallel with them a lot and just keep each other informed um, to the people who are working locally. And then Borderlands Research Institute, um, we work with Dr. Harvison at Sol Ross and Billy Tarrant to make sure that we're focusing our programming and kind of working in parallel with them as well. And and there is another organization um, out there who, who we work close with um, that, that affiliates these other two organizations as well. So kind of a roundabout answer, but basically we're always in touch with them and we, we have had them involved in our, our stakeholder conversations because we understand that they're very much a part of the region um, and its success. Okay. So this is, this is bringing in the, this is how you're tying the, the the wildlife component to the more environmental issues that you're dealing with. Right. Yeah, we bring in those partners who are more geared towards wildlife conservation into the conversation that we're having about land, dark dark skies, and um, and water. Yeah, I can see that. In fact, Texas Parks and Wildlife uh, were actually a supporter of one of the issues in Modern Huntsman. Um, I can't remember which volume it was, but they were definitely involved in, in one of the, the, the volumes. So it's good to see them mentioned again. They have and a large network that's very um, knowledgeable and has a lot of great expertise. And they have a lot of local people working out in West Texas. So even though they're based in Austin, there's still a lot of people who understand the issues locally, which is very important. So, are you able to are you able to pool and share resources between these other organizations and the university? I think that we're getting to the point where we're being more strategic with that. Um, in in other instances, we've had you know local water symposiums, for instance, where we brought in partners like 
Texas Parks and Wildlife has spoken at that event talking about the spring systems. I think we have not fully leveraged those relationships or really strategically thought through, okay, so how can we build some programming and and work on even bigger projects? We've done some small scale stuff, which has been very successful. Adeline, I'm not going to keep you any longer. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank Uh, you. Fascinating conversation. Glad that we managed to to raise it to the awareness of um, our podcast listeners. And I will direct people over to the website, I guess, if they have any questions or can people get involved? How can people get involved with you guys? Well, funny you should ask. So we are actually on the verge of launching a friends group, um, which would be a way to connect with us and also um, have some really cool merchandise. So I mentioned the partnership with Yeti. They've actually supplied us with with merch that has our new brand on it. And we're launching this sometime in November, I think. We're we're um, working on that. But anyway, we, we're going to have a friends group where people can still be involved. And then obviously we have a newsletter. We Please follow all of our social media platforms. That's where a lot of great content um, originates. So a lot of ways to get involved. In, and then maybe one day um, we'll also have a volunteer network for, for some of our programming. That's very cool. Well, what I'm going to do is the next time I'm out in Texas, which hopefully is going to be pretty soon, um, I'd love to come out and see some of the stuff if we're if we're allowed. I don't yes. know what the lockdown procedures are in Texas right now, but uh, it'd be really cool to come out and see and photograph and you know maybe write up some of the the initiatives that you guys are involved. We'd love in. to have you. Yeah, we'd love to host you, and we can definitely enjoy that dark sky. That we and I can uh, and I can bring my cowboy boots. <laughs> you have to you have to and, and maybe you'll have a hat by then too I, <laughs> yeah, I will <laughs> thank you so much I look forward to speaking to you thank again thank you Byron 